Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Jana Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today, in honor of National American Indian Heritage Month, I'm speaking with Greg Smoke, Director of the American West Center and Associate Professor of History, about the Native Places Project. This digital humanities project sets out to restore indigenous place names to major landscape features and historical and cultural sites with an interactive map centered on Utah. So let's just begin. What led you to begin this project of restoring indigenous place names to the different areas in Utah and the Mountain West as well? Well, there's there's a couple of factors involved here. Um, You know, being involved in public history, one of the big themes or one of the big issues in the last decade or so has been um, memory and reinterpretation. And um, we see this most clearly in the the removal of um, statues, say, um, in obviously the Confederate statues, but also the renaming of particular places. And um, this is an ongoing process, a cultural and historic process. And a few years back, I was um, preparing a, a, a talk for a, a professional meeting, and I was just happened to be talking with Forrest Kutch, former director of Indian Affairs for the state of Utah, who's a member of the Ute tribe. And I don't know how it came up, but I started talking about this this paper and how I was going to talk about the renaming of Grand Staff Canyon, which is just outside of Moab, Utah, and um, the implications of the, the former name of the place, which quite quite infamous, quite well known, um, which included a, a you know a racial epithet in its name, um, and Forrest said to me, "Well, you know, that place had a Ute name before that, even right." And so I thought, well. He's absolutely right. What was that? What was the Ute name of that canyon? And he did not know offhand, and other folks um, did not. I'm still kind of searching um, for that one. But that also got me thinking about some other um, things I had noticed in the past. One was a map that was created by a graduate student in Oklahoma who was a native graduate student. And in a, I think, a very important um, and well-meaning idea, created a map of North America with tribal place with tribal names put onto that map. And um, the problem with it though immediately jumped out at me was I looked at the state of Utah and there's only one there's only one tribal name on the map and that was Ute and it was written across the eastern margin of Utah into Colorado. And I it just struck me that that you know that really could be misleading that that could lead many people to say well there were no native people here right and this then the, the final part of this was, was thinking about you know one of a very impressive very wonderful book um, by an anthropologist named Keith Basso called Wisdom Sits in Places and in that book what Basso did and he different kind of projects than we're, what we're doing but he worked directly with western apache people in Arizona on a project to record place names and place names for cultural sites, historically meaningful sites for Apache people. And, you know, in that book, he makes very clear how much history, how much culture is is bound up in place names, these deeper meanings that um, come with them. And so, you know, all of these ideas go to spinning around. I thought, well, one way we could approach this was to... Think about Utah, think about the Intermountain West, 
and the way in which um, place names that we have that we think of today are these artifacts of colonization and think about what were those native place names before um, unlike um, what Basso did with the Apache people you know we're not trying to seek out um, culturally meaningful places per se but think about those big landscape features mountain ranges and mountains valleys rivers um, lakes right all of these types of places that people encounter all the time who's where the names are kept by the you know the United States Geological Survey's Bureau of Geographic names so these are official US government place names and think about how can we then restore the original place names, the indigenous place names, so that people can learn more about Native history and culture and territory. So let's um, talk about colonization for a second. When and why, essentially, were the names of these places changed? What was the purpose? Well, you know, mapping is a colonial process. And so just maybe (laughs) to, to... not directly address the question first, but let's talk about what maps are. Maps okay. are visualizations that convey a set of relationships, right? So that's what a map is. We can think of a mental map and think of a, a topographic map and so on. But they're visualizations that can play, um, convey relationships. And in that case, they are, in a sense, contests over reality, right? There, there's a real world out there. There's a physical world, but we represent it in particular ways with not different scales and different levels of abstractness, right? So that's what maps are. Maps were a tool from the very beginning of colonization to make landscapes, so to speak, legible to colonizers, understand what's out there. When you went then to configure these maps and give them names, um, there were a number of, of choices you could make, and in many cases, native place names uh, or versions of native place names actually do still exist, right? The Wasatch Range is a great example um, of that. But in many other cases, the ways in which maps are written then um, erase the native place names and instead insert the names of the colonizers. Whether this is not essentially an intentional process, it still reflects that the the um, process of colonization. So people come in, they will um, attach names to um, major geographic features that reflect their culture, their history, the people that they um, look to as heroes. And often this falls to um, government explorers or or the first um, Euro-Americans in particular areas. And again, often they're government explorers. So for instance, if we look at Great Salt Lake, it's it's there are early names and colloquial names attached to um, various places, but it's Howard Stansbury, government surveyor, that names all of the islands in Great Salt Lake, and he names them after people who work for him in some cases, like Carrington and um, and Gunnison, right? Um, Mormon settlers named the Heber Valley for Heber C. Kimball, who was a very active in missions in England. And most of those early Mormon settlers in, in the Heber Valley were um, English, right? So they had fond memories of him. So they, they're, they're inscribing their history and their culture 
on the landscape by doing it and making it then understandable um, to themselves. So what what is this? What is the impact? So when the names the um, the indigenous place names were changed, what was the impact on the native people? The you know the the immediate impact and the lasting impact. Well, you know, the immediate impact is that I think it really reflects Indian removal. The idea that you know these were native lands, and um, you know, for take for instance the U nation in Utah, the U tribe of Utah, um, you know, which is, is headquartered in the Uinta Basin at Fort Duchesne. Um, that was definitely Ute land, but so was the Heber Valley. So was especially big portions of the Wasatch Front and the Sand Pete Valley, right? So as these, as people are removed, they are physically removed, but then they are um, historically and culturally erased as well, right? So this is a process that you know, many historians write about and talk about today of, of settler colonialism, of removing, not just physically removing people from the landscape, but also erasing that history and then claiming that land in a, in a much more full way. And so, I mean, that's sort of the immediate impact is it's related to that removal. You know, the long-term impact is, is you know, similarly, it's, it's the erasure of history. And I think that this also impacts Native peoples as older people, or uh, current, I should say, living Native peoples, as current generations um may not retain uh, knowledge of these names. They're not in general use. And so they, over time, it becomes harder and harder and harder um, to recover those names and to restore them to the map. And certainly, you know, we're going to keep working on this project, but it's a long-term project, and it's one that, you know, will never be complete, nor we will ever get near, you know, in the long run, some kind of complete understanding of native place names in Utah. So what what does it mean for the for native people to have a map like this that does restore the indigenous place names and what does it mean for just, you know, the people in Utah and the Mountain West in general to n- know what the original names were? Well, again, I think the restoring history and restoring an understanding of native territory and sovereignty is probably something that the tribes will will value greatly um, to say that, um, you know, we've gone through a process here at the University of Utah to create a land acknowledgement statement. And, you know, land acknowledgements are great, but they, they really need to be backed up by action by the organizations that create them. And um, in a way, I think this can be a fuller land acknowledgement by a visual I- illustration to non-Native people in Utah of the fact that this is native land to understand that people lived here, that they had histories here and um, to understand that. Hopefully it'll be also be useful to native peoples and to, to tribal governments um, for um, in, in various ways. I think one of the ways that I'm very hopeful that this can be used is in terms of language preservation projects. That one of the ways to teach children um, and to restore the teaching of, of native languages would be through the use of place names. And that's a pretty common um, technique and something that, you know, if anyone learns a language, one of the things they first things they learn is um, um, what what place names are in, in that language. And so I think that's going to be um, pretty effective. I think it's also going to be 
hopefully useful in terms of heritage preservation, you know, as a way to preserve tribal history and culture. In that regard, our map uses a secondary database program um, called Mercatu, which is developed by Washington State University. And what that will allow tribes to do that work with us is to protect some of that um, cultural capital, some of that information. So if they only want tribal members to know particular things, and again, here I'm thinking mostly about really more sensitive cultural areas and sites that the general public does not need to know about, right? So it's one thing to, to, to put a name on um, the Uinta Range or King's Peak or Great Salt Lake. It's another thing entirely to identify the location of the sacred site. You know, we don't want to do that, but what we want to do is allow the, the tribes to perhaps preserve that information and control access to that. Right. So I think there's a lot of different ways that this could be useful. A number of people have raised the idea of the que that question of renaming again. Um, can this be used to address some of the the issues with, with offensive place names? Um, and the answer is yes. It wasn't the original intention, but it certainly could. For instance, there are over 50... Um, points in Utah that have the word squaw attached to the name. And this is an issue that um, the equivalent of the Board of Geographic Names here in Utah is is aware of and has been dealing with for years. But I think, you know, if this map could be used to um, illustrate all alternate names that were respectful of um, Native history and culture, then all the better. Um, again, that wasn't the initial purpose of the map. So I think there's a lot of ways that it can be useful. So tell us a little bit about how to use this map, because I was uh, looking at it, and I mean, you can, it goes into a lot of detail, and you, there are a lot of points that I, I suspect have taken a lot of research and a lot of work to do. So, but tell us a little bit how you search through the map and what you can find on this map. Okay, well, yeah, the map has currently, you know, I don't know, five or 600 different points on it. That's going to continue to grow as, as we begin uh, a much more engaged process with tribes to consult with them. But in general, what users can do is toggle, um, use, let me say it this way, there's, there's a menu on the map that allows you to search via the feature type, mountains, rivers and streams, canyons, etc., you can also search via um, language groups, right? So there are eight federally and state-recognized tribes within the state of Utah. But instead of going down to that detail, what we've done was, was stick with the five cultures slash language groups. So Shoshone, Paiute, Navajo, Goshute, and Ute, right? And so you can you can search by the um, the language group, or you can search by both. If you want to find what are the Goshute names for mountains in Utah, you can toggle on Goshute and mountains, and you'll get all of that. You can also see overlap with the map in that way, and that's, I think that's an important factor of this map. Rather than just writing a, a tribal name across a map in a particular place, what you see is people's use, people's understanding. You see where people range, where they lived, where they overlapped. Right, and you find a lot of that um, 
in in Utah and in the Intermountain West. Um, other parts of the map features. Let me think. What else I should say? I should say that it does move beyond um, the state of Utah, and that was a important and um, early decision um, on my part. And that's because you know the, the traditionally associated tribes in Utah weren't defined by modern rigid boundaries that are drawn on a map, right? You know, I think we we think of the American West, and there's so many there there are basically artificial boundaries in the American West between states. They are straight lines that just go in one direction or the other, and they divide um, the American West into these big squarish states. There's only a few examples where mountain ranges or um, you know the Snake River between Idaho and Oregon is an example of a natural boundary, right? And but most for the most part in the West we don't see that, right? Native and so those are artificial boundaries for native peoples. They're doubly artificial. You know, Shoshone people moved in and out of what is today Utah, but it was still their homeland. You know, ditto for the Utes, right? And 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 Goshoot people, right? Who you know today the the Confederated Tribes of the Goshoot reservation live on the on the border at Ibapa, Utah live right on the border with, with Nevada. And so it's silly to say we're just gonna do this map within the state of Utah. Right. We want to make sure that if we're gonna privilege native place names that we also privilege um, native understandings of territory. Mm-hmm. And one thing I liked that I I found really interesting about the map is that when you toggle on places it pops up with a little box and it tells you the the native place name, but it also tells you what that name means. And right. then it tells what you the, the translation current, is. The, the translation. I found that I found that really interesting because you can go through and see what the translation of all these um, place names are. And I found that I found that to be a really interesting part. Yeah, we're hopeful that in the future what we're going to do and in expanding the map is to um, add more features to those boxes, including hopefully photographs. But most importantly, I want to include sound files of native speakers pronouncing the names oh, so that, that they're great. not mispronounced, so they're not misunderstood. I think that would be um, a real um, bonus. And, and again, to privilege native cultures, languages, and history, we have to, to do that. Yeah. So are there, what are some, um, can you just provide a few examples before we end of some of the, like, maybe maybe some of the major landscapes, what the original names were and what the translations were? Um, sure. I think, well, I think one of the more obvious ones is um, the Tapanaquint River, which today is called the Provo River, right? Um, and the Ute people who lived in the Utah Valley um or the Timpanogos, the Timpanogos Nuche, or Timpanogos Utes, right? And so Timpanaquin, the reference to the river, means river with rocky stream, rocky bottom, or rocky river, right? Now, when um, Mormon pioneers moved in in 1850, and there was a conflict with the Utes, you know, they first named the settlement um, Fort Union, but then they named it, um, or excuse me, Fort Utah, then they named it Provo. And the name Provo comes from Etienne Provo, who was a French-Canadian fur trapper who worked out of Taos, New Mexico, and in 1825 um, arguably became the first Euro-American to um, see Great Salt Lake. 
right? So that's sort of his claim to fame. And he started a trading post in the area. Um, but I mean, he has a very brief tie. But again, this shows you that kind of renaming to celebrate colonization, right? So we're going to privilege Provo. Instead, though, the name Chimpanogos um, is is um, attached to the mountain, which is it was again based on the people and the river. Um, but that name gets obscured over time in stories, um, in romantic stories about um, native warriors and princesses and so on. Um, and so today, when people think of the Provo River. They bring the Provo River Canyon and so on. But it again has a um, an important native um, name. So I mean, I think that's a very good example. Mm-hmm. Um, there Absolutely. are many others. Yeah, um, Pia Pa in Western Shoshone is Great Salt Lake means big water. Um, a variation on that means bad tasting water, <laughs> which I think a lot of people would probably say, okay, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty um, down to earth, um, you know, literal naming. You see a lot of that. I guess, I guess my favorite example in Utah is, is Shaja, which is Navajo for bear's ears. But um, yeah, and and bear's ears, though, this is the amazing thing about that landscape feature, is that, um, you know, literally in Navajo, that means bear's ears. But so does the name, so does the Ute name, so does the Zuni name, right? And if you've ever been in that area, if you've driven um, south of the bear's ears, especially, and looked north of them, you go, oh. I see that, yeah. right? And all these different native people did. Now, there are f- multiple names for it, but all of them um, translate um, to bear's ears. And that's one that stayed with us, though, right? That's one that, that stayed on the landscape um, over time. And that's one of the things I liked about reading the translations is a lot of them are all very literal. Mm-hmm. They are. They're, they can be very quite liberal. Yeah, so yeah. you just like understand the landscape purely by the name. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, we're hopeful. This is MAPS. You know, it's a work in progress. Um, we continue to work on it today and, and starting consulting with the tribes. Um, we're waiting to hear back on a, on a major NEH grant to expand um, this work. But either way, um, we will continue to gather place names. We began by doing the secondary research. Um, we partnered with um, the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation who already had done their own mapping project. So a lot of the data you see for um, Shoshone and Western Shoshone place names um, came from um, the, the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. Um, we are looking to build those kind of partnerships with all the other um, tribes in Utah and you know build this map out um, so it can be used as an educational resource Um, in public schools and tribal schools. That was Greg Smoke, Associate Professor of History and Director of the American West Center. For more information about the Native Places Project, please visit nativeplacesatlas.org. And if you would like to learn more about the College of Humanities, visit humanities.utah.edu. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio. Humanities Radio.